it, it's a devastating time and it's hard to do anything but be heartbroken over what happened to George Floyd and his family. And, you know, the one of my hopes that rise out of this protests is that there's like a set of changes that people demand because the danger is that all of this energy and heart and spirit and passion ends up getting channeled, but like no one knows what to do. So we need to fight for something real and concrete. It's been a devastating and heartbreaking time in our country. Every night we're either transfixed by what's happening on streets around the, the country, or in some cases we're on the streets ourselves. I mean, there, there are curfews that have been implemented in dozens of cities, but I, I saw a report this morning saying that 10,000 people have been arrested in relation to the protests. And you know, that's a very, very small fraction of the folks who've been marching. So you're looking at hundreds of thousands of people who've been gathering and protesting around the country. I went to a vigil here in upstate New York and hundreds of people came out. And we all saw what happened to George Floyd having his life extinguished uh, before our eyes. It's like how many people are killed by police every year? And the sick part is you don't know uh, that it's unclear how many people die uh, in encounters with police or in police custody every year because the data is not reported. Despite the fact that a law was passed that uh, asked the Department of Justice to compile this report, um, but they just never have gotten the data because it's dependent upon police departments submitting. And so you have 18,000 police departments around the country uh, and the best estimates are that uh, a thousand or more Americans die in contact with police annually. Cities spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on settlements for pol- police brutality cases. New York City alone spends $300 million a year on direct payments liability. Chicago, $47 million. Nationwide, you're looking at about a billion dollars or more annually. And if you think about what that means, you know that only a small fraction of the people that actually would have a legitimate case can successfully sue the city and get a settlement. So you're looking at billions of of dollars uh, easily um, in liability. Mm -hmm. And the billion dollars I'm talking about is just direct payouts. It doesn't include lawyers' fees, which we know can be massive, or insurance, which we know can be massive. That's just payouts to people. That's just payouts directly to families. So looking at it objectively, you'd have to say, okay, this is a very significant problem. And you know it's a significant problem in part because the district attorney is bringing suits against police officers who are accused of misconduct. But if you look at the incentives of the DA, the DA works with police officers hand in hand every single day to make cases. The last thing they want to do is go to war over some police misconduct. And it's similar for the local mayor. Like the mayor's best friend is likely the police chief. 
-hmm. and the mayor does not want to go to war with law enforcement in their community because they're some of the most powerful constituents in the community. So you're looking at a massive problem, the scope of which you don't really even know because we don't have the data. And we all know if there had not been a video of George Floyd being killed, it just would have been another unnoticed um, death. So there's frustration, there's anger, there's fear and anxiety. But to me, in the conversations I've been having, there's a sense of helplessness as you watch this unfold. You know, you wake up every morning and you see another horrific instance and you're like, what, what can I actually do? Where's the first place we can start as a society to start fixing this? Well, there are uh, studies that, that have been done as to what we can do to improve police violence. And uh, the work that Campaign Zero has done, I find really compelling because it's very data-driven. Uh, one of the leaders there is a data scientist. And so they have six uh, recommendations that have been proven to work. And they're not easy because, again, you're talking about 18,000 police departments. But one thing that was on the list was federal oversight. When the Department of Justice has investigated police departments, incidents of police brutality have dropped significantly. And so one thing I've uh, championed is that we should have a new George Floyd police misconduct division of the Department of Justice that is dedicated to police misconduct issues around the country. Because if you look at it objectively, the local law enforcement officials are going to have a very hard time bringing suits against other law enforcement officials in their vicinity. If you're a good cop mm -hmm. or a DA or the mayor, you are thrilled that there's someone who can come in and administer and prosecute these matters. That's not you. Because in your case, like you're picking a fight with someone who's in your backyard. But if you have the feds come in, then they can be objective and hold people accountable. You've talked about this task force a lot. So actually, it'd be interesting to see how this would work. So theoretically, you're the DA in Minneapolis. Would you be the one calling this task force to come in or would the, the, this task force see it objectively? And it's like, it's out of your hands. We make the decision. Like, how does it mechanically, how does this work or how would you want it to work? Well, uh, in this case, the, because of, we can all see enormous public pressure, like the district attorney has uh, brought charges against the uh, four officers involved. Right. Uh, but in the absence of this kind of situation where it's uh, literally in the national spotlight, you'd have mm -hmm. the independent investigators who, who act like the FBI where they can be called in by local law enforcement, but they could be called in by local members of the community too. So when you talked about data, one of the things we've struggled with is there's not a lot of it. The data is rough, which is a major problem. And that leads us to number two, you need to track complaints and you need to keep a database of officers who are fired or disciplined because right now what happens is you can fire a bad cop and then they'll leave that town or state and then go someplace else and then get rehired. The other piece of this is how to de-escalate a situation. And most of these situations are not inherently violent, right? So that there are a range of situations where you call someone uh, and you'd prefer that they show up and resolve the situation in a nonviolent way. And so there, there are two elements mm -hmm. to this. One is trying to train police officers to have a continuum of use of force where deadly force is the absolute, absolute last resort. 
But the other thing, which is what I was suggesting, is that you could have non-police organizations that are able to respond to emergency calls. In Oregon, they have this crisis assistance helping out on the street organization where you have crisis workers and mental health providers who can respond to incidents involving homelessness, substance abuse, mental health crises. And in these situations, you don't need someone showing up like saying, hey, like, who am I here to pull a gun on? Like a quarter of police shooting victims are mentally ill. Majority of mentally ill people are not violent are not threatening. But if you're a police officer and you're in that situation, you're like, well, snap, like the, you know, this person is not listening to anything I'm saying, you know, halt or I'll, I'll shoot. And then the person doesn't halt. There are a lot of situations where you need help, but you don't necessarily need police help. Like you don't think it's like a life or death situation that's going to involve a firearm. Is that related to demilitarizing the police? I know you've had some comments on that too. And we were talking about one of our colleagues went to protest and he said it was extremely peaceful and the cops showed up who were also peaceful, but they were decked out in riot gear and everybody got on edge and then it got wild. Well, riot gear is not the half of it, Zach. I mean, there's a Pentagon program uh, that actually allows the military to send surplus military equipment to police and sheriff's departments. So you have some of these 18,000 police departments around the country that have tanks and armored vehicles and grenade launchers and uh, military style hardware. And studies have shown that when you have this military equipment in place, you use it. And then if you use it, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to wind up with uh, deaths resulting from police action. So this Pentagon program um, was discontinued by Barack Obama's administration and then was reversed by the Trump administration, which is not surprising. And so we need to rein this in. And that makes sense from a human perspective as well, like just putting more people on edge. So when I went to a vigil, police officers were there, but it was 100% peaceful. Would it have been different if those police officers had those face masks on and riot gear and like vests and nightsticks? It, it would have mm-hmm. given a very different energy And in many cases, if you're a protester showing up, like you're agitated, obviously. And so if there's a police officer there who, let's say, is just wearing a normal outfit, you can see their face and interact with you like a human, then you're more likely to have like a less negative or violent interaction with them than if they're like a faceless military style looking figure And I think it's true on both sides. Like, I genuinely think if you cover my face with a mask and give me a baton, like, I'm more likely to be an asshole than if you can see my face and I'm looking at you eye to eye. Right. I'm really interested, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, on the the community aspect of this. Like, what have you seen there as a good solution that could work? There have been positive examples of community-based policing where uh, police officers regularly volunteer and spend time in like rec centers and plain clothes where it's not always just rolling up in the cruiser like in full uniform and then you you wind up with more trust being developed in both directions This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep 
lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So one thing that has not worked, at least uh, demonstrably, and this is going to pain a lot of people, is like implicit bias trainings and empathy trainings. Mm -hmm. It's like that if you go in and you say, uh, you know, we're all biased against certain people, like you may have developed biases too. And then you try and see whether that changed behavior right. and they haven't been able to demonstrate that it has. doesn't mean that it doesn't work, right. but they haven't been able to demonstrate that it does work. And there's similar data on body cameras, right? Too. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and body cams, like I love body cams because right. common sense to me, it's like, look, if I shoot someone in the dead of night um, and it's just me and that person I shot and there's no footage, then I'll be like, Hey, like person attacked me, right. and, you know, and then you don't know. At least the footage is like another data point. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely, these things are helpful, but not necessarily affecting the numbers. Right. Like, like, I, like I don't have any illusions that like putting body cams on, on uh, cops, like all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, all the problems go away. Yeah. But I will say that like, you know, there have been times when you can refer to the footage and you're like, okay, like I, I have a pretty good mm -hmm. sense of what happened here. And, you know, you saw the opposite of it. I don't know if you just saw like a police chief was fired in Kentucky in, in Louisville because a barbecue restaurant owner was shot and they didn't have their body cams on. And so like the, they looked and said like, what is going on? Right. So I, I think that's like a useful standard. It's like right. give people body cams, say we expect them to be on. And then if the body cam wasn't on, then, you know, you can start unfortunately like saying like, well, I think something happened here that shouldn't have happened, particularly right. if, you know, someone has been shot and killed. Um, so, so the data is inconclusive on body cams, but I will say like, I'm enthusiastically for body cams. Uh, like, uh, I think we should just give them, especially cause like we hold people in other contexts that standards we hold bank tellers. Yeah. Bank tellers, call center employees, um, hotel employees, convenience store. It's like, you know, that, that stuff's getting recorded and police officers, it's literally life or death. So, you know, if you have the capacity to record, I feel like you, you definitely should. So the two other things that they've shown work make sense. Number one or number four, depending upon your counting, is get rid of the language in police union contracts that limits uh, officer accountability, where if an officer is called up on some kind of complaint or discipline, these contracts often protect them in various ways. And if that language gets changed, then complaints go down. So that's something that's difficult because you have union contracts 
that are different across the country, mm-hmm. but behavior changes if you change those, those union rules. Then the other is the thing you were saying before about training, where if police departments have restrictions on chokeholds or certain techniques, this brings down abuse and fatality rates. Right. And so th- this suggests that we should be looking at national standards, which would go into training. So you're talking about some of the bureaucracies and protections within police union contracts. So there's an officer during the Parkland shooting, their one like school cop hid behind his police car and didn't go inside the building. And that officer was fired. But then I think it was 15 months later after firing him for neglect of duty, they were forced to, to hire him back with back pay because firing him was a violation of his rights based on the union contract under those pretenses. And so what a prime example of like, if they want to fire somebody, they, they can't. Yeah. I mean, if, if you have a police officer who's on the scene and could have prevented a massive loss of life, that was that officer's job and moment of truth. And if they, right. you know, shrank from that, then like, if you're a community, like, do you want that officer? This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. I think it's clearly freaking wrong that these cops killed a man while arresting him when it was completely unnecessary. And it's extremely wrong that our system hasn't been fixed in decades of knowing these problems exist and there's there, there's things our government needs to do and i think people can hold them accountable or try to but if you're an average citizen right now what what can we do what would you recommend individual people do to start writing these wrongs it, it's a devastating time and it's hard to do anything but be heartbroken over what happened to george floyd and his family but also what's happening around the country we all have to do everything we can to help. 
So if you want to help first, just trying to help people in your own life, in your own situation, be the best person you can be, uh, take care of yourself. Like mental health is uh, a crisis on top of a crisis right now. And, you know, it doesn't do us any good if we're individually not strong or, or don't have our head on straight. In terms of organizations to help, there are a lot of them. So I don't want to just, you know, say like, oh, this one or, or that one. Mm-hmm. But some of the organizations that are doing great work in this direction, um, Color of Change, Campaign Zero, MappingPoliceViolence.org. One of the organizations I found working on what you talked about, Andrew, where you have emergency responders that are not carrying weapons, responding to certain calls that are ideally nonviolent in nature. It's called whitebirdclinic.org. It's based in Oregon, but they have a program called CAHOOTS, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. It's mobile crisis intervention 24-7. Programs like that, to me, should be scaled around the country. And then the other thing, if you're interested in policy and getting new ideas out there, Berkeley Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute of Law and Social Policy has done a lot of work on, frankly, community policing and how that works. So that's the Earl Warren Institute of Law and Social Policy at, at University of California, Berkeley. And, you know, the, one of my hopes that rise out of this protests is that there's like a set of changes that people demand because the danger is that all of this energy and heart and spirit and passion ends up getting channeled, but like no one knows what to do. So we need to fight for something real and concrete that we can bring to our communities and George Floyd and his family and say, look, George's life and his death brought about tremendous change. And here are the changes and we can see them all. And that this is a positive turning point in our nation's history because of your brother's sacrifice, or your you know father's sacrifice. Like the, the obvious one was like, well, you need to arrest um, the officers, and now they've all been arrested. But we can tell that the protests about something much, much bigger. Right. This is the crisis of our time in terms of racial justice and police brutality. Mm-hmm. But there are all of these things that are layered on top of it. The fact is, we've set ourselves up by having what Cornell West called failure upon failure upon failure for decades where you have an economy that hasn't created a decent way of life for millions of people and then a legal system and a police system that has not protected people's rights, particularly people of color. Mm -hmm. And you know, one thing I don't mind being is like the guy who's still talking about the economy when no one else is because the economy is still like underpinning all this stuff. Like we got another 2 million unemployed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right now we're adding fuel to the fire because there's this backdrop of need and desperation that's rising. Mm-hmm. We're at depression era levels of unemployment. Yep. Uh, people are protesting and riding on the streets. Like the minimum you can do is safeguard people's material well-being. We need to move very fast on universal basic income because right now a quarter of the nation's workforce is out of work. I've seen surveys between 66 and 80% of Americans agree that we should have cash relief during this time. We're going to be digging out of this economic catastrophe for years. Right. And we need to start right now and, and put people in a position where they feel like their futures are secure. Right. But that said, I think people misunderstand you sometimes. Like you are by no means saying that 
the money will cure everything. It will help a lot, but if you give people money, they're still going to have massive injustice in us in the police system. Yeah, of of course. Uh, I mean, the money's not going to give George Floyd's family like uh, they're not. It's not going to turn people's loved ones to them. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So I'm going to recap to make sure we're aligned. If you're listening to this and you want to help, I think one of the best thing to do is call your congressman or congresswoman in your area, or your district, call your senator. And here's the things you should ask for. And Andrew, make sure I get these right. One, cash relief, universal basic income. Let's put out the massive unemployment fire and financial scarcity that's fueling a lot of desperation in our communities. Two is federal oversight um, and a federal task force. Three is better training for officers, which includes community policing and not using chokeholds and nonviolent responses to emergency calls. Four is better data um, and making sure we track this and we know exactly what we're measuring and what we're trying to solve for. And then lastly, five would be loosening up these extremely strict bureaucratic union contracts that are preventing our institutions from acting. Those are the five I have did I miss anything? Or? There, there's, there's the big six uh, demilitarization ah, yeah. that the freaking tanks and grenade launchers out of the hands of police departments around the country that should be serving and protecting and not treating it like a war zone. Right. So hopefully this is a helpful way to act for you listening to this. Um, hopefully you feel there's, there's causes that at least, or types of organizations to start looking for to help. We are all about solutions because to me, what would be the worst outcome is if we have these protests over and over and then nothing happens. That's, that's the worst outcome, I believe. And, or just keep this, this terrible actions, these terrible actions keep happening. Yeah. So we, we have to make real changes in our society and we need to present a vision for what those changes must be and then make them real, keep pressure on our leaders until they become law and, and people will know that George's life and his death change the course of history in this country for the better.